This morning's reading uh, is taken from Joshua chapter 1. We're reading verses 1 to 6. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. A number of years ago, in what now seems a galaxy far, far away, we started a a 24-7 prayer room during Holy Week. This was in Prestwick. And that's, that's one of the very early iterations of it. Uh, that, that blackboard stuff there, it, it was just, it was kind of electrostatic and it, it, it would cling to the wall when you unrolled it. And of course, when you started to write on it, it all squidged up and it wasn't. So that, that whole wall, we turned into a blackboard. It was great. And we had lots of different activities around that you could go and you could spend an hour just praying, working through different activities, helping you to pray about a whole variety of different things. And we were very fortunate because if this was the sanctuary, well, just behind where this pulpit is, there was the session room and there was a vestry and there was a toilet. So the vestry was where the tea and coffee and biscuits were and there was another fire escape. So it was very safe, very secure, lovely sofas and a gas fire for the middle of the night when it was cold. See, it was just ideal. And it took us, I have to say, a little bit of persuasion to get people to sign up. Because when you say to people, come and pray for an hour, they go, sorry, how long? An hour. Go, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I mean, what do you say for an hour? So it took a bit of time. And then when you said to them, and why don't you come at three o'clock in the morning and pray for an hour? They just laughed. So I used to go in the middle of the night because it was absolutely amazing. Because during the rest of the day, there was traffic noise. There were people coming and going using the rest of the building. But in the middle of the night, there was nothing. It was silent. And it was brilliant time to be in that space. And, of course, what happened was uh, people did sign up. And they discovered that an hour wasn't enough. So they would come back for another time during the week. And as the years went on, and we did it each year, people then began to sign up early so they could get the bit that they wanted. So people would say, all right, okay, I'm starting at, starting at work at eight o'clock, so I'll go from six and I'll do, I'll do time before I go to work. And people did actually begin to take the middle of the night slots, which was great. There was a a sign that we put up at the door 
saying, please take off your shoes because you are entering holy ground. And by the end of the week, that's exactly what it felt like. Because the atmosphere changed. And when you walked into that space, you knew that people had been wrestling in prayer with God. One Sunday morning, I recall quite vividly, I, I went in before the service and I took my shoes off and I had on very bright stripy socks. And there's a door through from this room into the chancel. And without really thinking about it, I went through the door for the service. And a lady said to me at the end, when I saw you coming through there with no shoes on, I thought, oh no, what's he going to ask us to do now? <laughs> that is not the only place like that for me. I hope that you have places that you feel close to God that you go to pray and to spend time with him. The Bible is full of these kind of places, and we're going to look at one in particular today. We are in this uh, series called Long Story Short, looking at 13 incidents from Genesis to Revelation, incidents that changed everything at that time. We've uh, looked about uh, creation at the promise, at the exodus, at the covenant, and this week, we come to the conquest. They're at the edge of the promised land. It has taken them 40 years because they were disobedient. And yet here they are, ready just to take that step. Moses has died and he has handed over responsibility for leadership to Joshua. There are lots of ways to read uh, the Bible. One of them is biography. You, you read the stories of Moses, of Joshua, of Abraham, of David, of all of these uh, folk uh, that, that are fairly well known if, you, if you've been around church uh, for any length of time. And uh, you, you can look at them, you can read about them, you can study their lives, you can learn from them. But one of the other ways is to, to think of where they are at different times, the geography of the place. Because I think spirituality and geography are not unrelated. I think there are places even today in Scotland, theologically you would call them liminal spaces, thin places, where when you go, you can feel the presence of God in a way that you don't feel in other places. I think geography has an important role for this. Lots of geography has a, has a genealogy. If you, if you don't know the geography of the Bible, you can miss out on some important aspects of the story. Although, I have to say, it's probably going to be very difficult to get there for a while. If you've never been to, the, to, to, to Israel in that area, then I can highly recommend it. Because it, it, it just brings things into uh, a, a, kind of a way of thinking that, that you don't get unless you've seen it. So I remember one day we were staying in a hotel and we said, oh, talk to about the beach on the Sea of Galilee. And they said, yes, but it'll close at four o'clock. What do you mean the beach will close at four o'clock? What are you talking about? Four o'clock, because there'll be a storm. And we kind of looked out. Glorious, absolutely glorious day. 
Not a cloud in the sky. Four o'clock. Down came the storm. And so when you read that they went out in the boat and a storm came, all of a sudden you think, oh, that's what it was like. When you can't see for the cloud and the rain and the wind. When Jesus is walking on the water, actually you can think, oh, right, I get that. They must have been terrified. They went out, but they didn't expect it. And all of a sudden, they're in the middle of this storm. When you see the, the geography of the place, it begins to, to, to help you to understand things in a different way. And so the place that we're going to look at today is the, the first place they stopped when they came into the promised land. And it's a really significant place in the Old Testament. In week one, I said to you that God is bigger than big and closer than close. You don't need to go anywhere to find God. He is present everywhere. What often is missing is our awareness of his presence. I don't have to take a pilgrimage to the Western Wall uh, to put a prayer uh, in, in, the, in the rocks or the stone there or to Westminster Abbey or to Glasgow Cathedral or wherever it is you want to go. But pilgrimage was important for the people of Israel. There were three pilgrimage feasts and Jews from all over the ancient world would travel to Jerusalem. Psalm 84 verse 5 said, Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, who want to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Blessed are you for doing that. But I think there is value in pilgrimage. Uh, there's a little formula that you, you might already know. Change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. When you're in the middle of all the stuff that's going on in your life, it's hard to take that step back and to spend time with God. But if you can change your pace and your place, then it allows you that moment to think. So the Jewish people eventually, uh, after many years, built a temple. It had a holy of holies, and God's presence would come into that place. Between the wings of the cherubim, a place called the mercy seat with a gold lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. No Indiana Jones, sadly, but there we go. The Bible also said that God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. So there's a wee if you've studied the history of religion, you know that what sets Judaism, or in those days set Judaism apart from everybody else, was its monotheism. Hero Israel, God says, the Lord our God is one God. Fast forward to the Nicene Creed that says we believe in one God, but three persons. That seems basic to us, because we are at the far side of that. But actually, that's a dramatic departure. And so, three and a half thousand years ago, for Israel, this is a dramatic departure from what people around them understood. The dominant belief was not in one God, but in lots of gods. And those gods were geographical or territorial. There were Egyptian gods and Babylonian gods and Assyrian gods and Canaanite gods. And they were there for an area. And it was believed that they were powerless outside their area. And that's huge when you think about it in the Old Testament terms. Let me give you an example. Elijah's showdown. There were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. 
He starts with the 450 prophets of Baal. But even then, 450 to 1, quite long odds. Mount Carmel had become a, a pagan place. And it's almost like Elijah saying, let me beat you at your own game and in your stadium. And they began to worship. They built their altar. They got their sacrifice ready. And the idea was that they would call fire from heaven and it would be destroyed. And they went on and they went on and they went on and they began to cut themselves and they did all that and nothing happened. And then Elijah begins to slag them off. Hang on a minute. You're obviously not shouting loud enough. He must be sleeping and he's not hearing you. Shout louder. So they shouted loud. Well, maybe he's gone for a walk. Maybe he's away. Oh, come on. And he went on and and eventually he got to the point and said, right, enough. And he rebuilt the altar of the Lord. And he got the sacrifice ready. And he built a ditch around it. And they got water, so much water that was poured over the altar and the sacrifice. And it filled this trench round about it. Now, this is a time when there's been no rain for years. I was wondering, where did they get that water? But the significant point was, he then said, God... Show them who you are. And the whole, not just the sacrifice, but the whole altar and all of the water was consumed by God. God proving his power was beyond boundaries. If you go back to the signs and wonders that happened in Egypt, God saying, even there, where Pharaoh thought he was God, he couldn't, he couldn't beat me. Because I am God there, and I am God here, and I am God everywhere. Next is chapter 33. The Israelites are camped around Mount Sinai, and Moses prays an amazing prayer. He says this, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. So Moses gets it. Moses realizes that God is not just for the one place at the one time. If you don't go with us, we don't want to go. We can't do it on our own. So don't send us. He says, How will anyone know that you are pleased with me or your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish us from all of the other people on earth unless you are with us? And again, there's that radical request. Moses professing his faith in a God who goes with us and a God who goes before us and a God who will never leave us or forsake us. And God makes a radical promise in return. He says, my presence will go with you. At the end of services, what do we say? May the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go with you and be with you and remain with you. That promise has never changed. God has never let his people down. The Jewish rabbis used to debate why God would appear to Moses in a burning bush and not you know, earlier in a pyramid or, or in the palace. Why not show up there in some kind of power earlier? Here we are in the backside of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and God shows up in a burning bush. And the consensus of rabbinic tradition is that God did that 
to show that nowhere is devoid of his presence. God is bigger than big and closer than close. With that as a backdrop, the reading that we had today says, after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He says, Moses, my servant is dead, so the time has come for you to lead the people, the Israelites across the Jordan, into the land. I promise you what I promised Moses. We'll come back to that. Wherever you set foot, you'll be on the land that I've given you, and so on. Then finishes with, be strong and courageous. For you're the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. In three congregations that I've been part of, people have done prayer walking. They have, they have walked round the boundaries of the parish, claiming it for God and claiming the people who are in it for God. That idea comes from here. Wherever you walk, wherever you claim, whatever you ask for, I'm going to be with you and and I'm going to give it to you. The idea is that God has given this area, the parish, he expects his people to claim it by staking it out, by walking the boundary and fighting, not against, but for the people who live there. And just, you know, people say, but that wasn't it, that that was for Joshua, that promise was for Joshua and, and then, but it wasn't. So just as I promised Moses, so I promise you. And I think God still says, just as I promised Moses and Joshua, so I promise you, go out into your community and claim it in my name. Here we are thousands of years later. But there are lessons to learn from the conquest of the promised land. So the first thing I want to say is this. Follow the ark. Follow the ark. The presence of God was in the ark of the covenant. And God gives specific instructions in Joshua chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Imagine, GPS, follow this and I will guide you. Follow the ark. Seriously, don't try to get ahead of God. Don't get ahead of the ark. Don't think that you know some shortcut that God is unaware of. Following his leading, that means developing an intimate relationship with Jesus and following him, trusting him. But it also means keeping in step with Holy Spirit. The ark represents the presence of God. And it makes me think of Moses. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us. And here was the the, the fulfillment of the promise to Moses. My presence will go with you. And to Joshua, he says, follow the ark. Number two, consecrate yourself. Joshua uh, chapter three, verse five. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. God will do amazing things among you. What if Sunday by Sunday, we took that as our prayer. Getting ready for Sunday, we said, right, I'm going to consecrate myself because tomorrow God is going to do amazing things among us. Do you think that might make a difference to what we experienced when we came to church? I think it would. 
We often want to do amazing things for God, but that's not our job. That's his job. God does amazing things for us. Our job is to consecrate ourselves. And what does that mean? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not just going to church. It's not daily devotions. It's not fasting during Lent. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not tithing. It's not going on mission trips or serving in a ministry or leading a small group. All of those are good, perfectly right things. Let's do those things. But consecration isn't a habit thing. It's a heart thing. It's not behavior modification. It's a heart that is fully surrendered to God. It's getting up out of the throne of your own life and relinquishing that throne to Jesus. It's surrendering all of you to all of him. Recognizing that it's all from him and for him anyway. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 5 says, we are consecrated by prayer and by the word of God. So let's start there and see what God does. And thirdly, you've got to step into the river. In Joshua 3 and 8, God says, when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go and stand in the river. That's one of those kind of, really? Really stand in the river? Sure. Your feet are going to get wet. <laughs> Don't really want to get my feet wet, thanks very much. But there we go, stand in the river. It would be much easier if, you know, if God had just stopped the water flowing. He did eventually. But no, first of all, let's take that step of faith. Let's get in the water before God reveals the next step. And God tells them to do something quite interesting. Take 12 stones, one for each tribe, and carry them to the place called Gilgal. Joshua 5, 9, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. It took one day for God to get Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And this is where God does it. This is where he rolls away their guilt and their reproach, and their shame. Finally, he says, the past is to be put in the past, and we are going to move into the new thing that I have for you. It's the place where old wounds are healed. It's the place where we finally find a measure of freedom from our shame. So many things happen in Gilgal. The Israelites celebrate the first Passover in the promised land at Gilgal. All of the men are circumcised because they didn't do that in the desert. This is where the manna stops and they begin to eat the produce of the promised land. This is where Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord and takes off his sandals because it's holy ground. This is where Joshua's base of operations for their conquest of the promised land was. Gilgal was one of the places on the circuit that the prophet Samuel, the first leader since Joshua, to be recognized by the whole of Israel, traveled to provide judgment for Israel. This is the kingship of Saul was reaffirmed at Gilgal after he led a victorious campaign against the Ammonites. Gilgal was where Saul twice ignored God's command and Samuel informed him that the Lord had rejected him as king and his dynasty would not continue. After David's son Absalom mounted an unsuccessful revolt against him, David was greeted by the people and reaffirmed as the king of Israel at Gilgal. Many years later, Gilgal is the starting point of a pilgrimage that ended in the prophet Elijah being carried up to heaven in a whirlwind while his apprentice Elisha looked on. 
Gilgal was also one of those places that Elisha went for his ministry. Later in Israel's history, the prophets Hosea and Amos condemned the Israelites for wickedness and corrupt worship in Gilgal. Lastly, in the course of calling the people of Israel to account for their abandonment of the Lord, the prophet Micah reminded them of God's care for them at Gilgal. Bringing that story full circle. There's one more story about Gilgal, though, and it's a cracker. They take the stones across and say, well, why are we doing this? What what are these stones about? What's going on here? And in Joshua chapter 4, verse 6, we're told why. He said, we'll use these stones to build a memorial in the future. Your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? And then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. Fast forward 97 years, Israel's conquered the land and entered an area of history where there are judges in the land. There is one judge named Ehud, left-handed Ehud. This is where we get the word sinister from, because he was left-handed. Sinister is the word for being left-handed. So they were sinister. And so, when he went into King Eglon and they searched him, they forgot he was left-handed. So they put him down. And there was no sword, because he was left-handed and he had it tucked in here. And they missed it. It's not the most politically correct story because he goes into king um, and the king is enormously fat. So fat that when Ehud takes the knife and sticks it in him and kills him, the fat covers the knife. And we're told there was a pungent aroma, let's put it that way. So much so that the servants thought the king had gone to the toilet. Now, how much time do you give the king on the toilet? Hmm? That allowed Ehud to escape. And they had many years of peace after Eglon had died. But the long story short bit is that Ehud had actually gone to pay tribute to Eglon. Humbling and embarrassing. This was supposed to be the Israelites' land. And now he's got to go and pay taxes to this king who has taken over. So I'm guessing he walked away kind of defeated, a bit sorry for himself. And in Judges chapter 3 verse 19 it says, But... When Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. Now, we do not know, nobody knows, whether those, that reference to stone idols is actually the 12 stones and the memory, or because that was a place where they they used idols in worship, and he looked at it and saw how far they had fallen. We don't know which it was, but something significant happened as he walked there and saw what was happening and the people of Israel were doing. And it filled him full of courage to say, God, this is not good enough. 
This is our land that you gave us. And he was filled with strength and went back and killed the king. And they had 80 years of peace as a result. What are we doing that's going to make a difference 97 years from now? What are we doing that's going to make a difference next week? What altars for God are we building for our children and our children's children and their children? For those who come after us. Things that will trigger their faith so that they say, this is not good enough. We think that what God does for us is for us, but it's never just for us. We think, you know, kind of right here and right now, the immediate, but God is thinking about nations and about generations. So I think we better build some altars for the people that we don't even know yet. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but here's the bottom line. Everything God did for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Moses, he did for you and me. All of those promises belong to us. Why? Because we are grafted into Abraham through faith in Jesus. Every battle we fight, we fight for others. Every victory we win, we win for others. We want our new congregation to work for us, but also for those who come after us. We pray for our children and young people. We watch them going out here every Sunday. And I hope you pray for them. I hope you pray that when they're through there, God's Spirit falls on them and that they are overcome by His presence. That, that being part of this congregation is preparing them for life and life of faith. That when they go away, if they go away to college or university, they go with our blessing, our support, our encouragement. But they go with God, knowing that he goes with them. I hope you pray for them and their families. Because it's difficult being parents in these days. What are we building? Not just for today, but for generations to come. I hope that today, in this our day, that somebody here finds this place to be their Gilgal a place where they feel close to God, where God rolls away reproach and shame and bitterness and all the stuff that keeps us from him. That where, in effect, we circumcise our hearts to him and say, yes, Lord, I am for you because you are for me. That this is the place where our Passover happens, when we are rescued from death and brought into life. That this is our place where we build an altar and say, yes, Lord, we want you. Let's pray.
Father, I pray for each of us here today and for those who are worshipping with us online. But Lord, especially for those who right now feel a tug at their heart. I think that's your spirit speaking. And I pray that right now, some would be consecrating themselves to you. Father, for those who've never surrendered their life to you, I pray that they would do it right here and right now. We rejoice with the angels in heaven at what you are able to do among us. And maybe for others, it's a shame that they've carried for years that you're going to roll away. For others, a part of their heart that they need to give over to you. Father, we thank you that you are here with the offer of forgiveness and of life. Help us in this place to build an altar to you, giving you thanks for what you've done, for what you've done for us so far. But also for what is still to be. It's not just us. It's not even just the generations of young people and children we see in this place. It's their children and their grandchildren that we pray for. Father, we long to see them grow in faith for you. We long to see their lives change, the potential that there is in those young lives. Father, will you, will you call them to yourself? Even in their youth, Samuel, David, the disciples, they were all young. And yet they did amazing things because you were with them. And Father, it's not just young people. Abraham was old. Moses was old. So many of these folks were in their, in, in their old age, and yet you did amazing things through them too. Caleb, in his 80s, was given land, and he had to go and fight for it. It didn't just come to him. And so, Father, we pray for every single person here. Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Will you show us what it is you called us to do as your people in this place? And not just for us, but for generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.